Podcast 2, A Gut Response to Long-Term Care. Welcome to the podcast series, More Than Guts. This is a series of educational, non-promotional podcasts on inflammatory bowel disease, which have been organised and funded by Bristol-Myers Squibb. This episode is called A Gut Response to Long-Term Care. Welcome to the BMS podcast, A Gut Response to Long-Term Care. Today, particularly, we're focusing on the importance of continuity of care, something which, personally, I think is very difficult to achieve in the NHS currently, but it's something that we know that patients really value. My name's Dr. Philip Smith, and I'm a consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, uh, an IBD specialist, and also, just uh, as an added bonus, I guess, I'm a patient with IBD after being diagnosed in 1995. And I'm delighted to introduce today um, two special guests. One, um, uh, Dr. Karen Kemp. Hi, my name's Karen Kemp. I'm a consultant nurse, inflammatory bowel disease in central Manchester. And Neil. Thanks, Phil. Well, my name's Neil Gooding. Um, I was one of the first uh, small children ever diagnosed with Crohn's disease back in uh, back in 1975. Um, so over over the years, I've experienced um, most forms of treatment. I've had had surgery currently on uh, currently on biologics, um, but managed to figure out sort of how to, how to live a decent enough life around all that and manage it reasonably well. So I've had a career, marriage, had a few adventures on the way. Um, and uh, looking forward to discussing continuity of care. Perfect. Well, um, uh, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for joining. Um, Neil, I mean, um, I'm going to come to you first. I mean, Karen and I uh, are experts in our particular field, but really uh, having inflammatory bowel disease for as long as you have, I think you said 47 years, um, uh, a very long time. You've been through almost every treatment, I, I guess, that we've got available to us in our armatarium. Um, tell us about your personal experiences of, of um, uh, continuity of care and uh, on long-term care. Thanks, Phil. Well, um, first of all, I'd say I've been very fortunate to be treated by some of the finest um, clinicians that, that there are. I've been, uh, worked with some very, very, uh, very, very talented and caring people. Um, in terms of continuity of care, um, I would say that the, the first and perhaps most obvious one would be moving between um, between centres. Um, so I remember mo- when I was um, a sort of a late teenager, uh, moving from Great Ormond Street into the care of, uh, of St Mark's. Um, I then had a period when I was um, away at university, but still looked after by St Mark's. And um, then more recently, when I was in my late 20s, um, relocated from the southeast of England up to the uh, up to the northwest, um, and then had to um, had to had to find a find a new clinic to to look after me um, up there. Um, so that's the uh, that's the first um, sort of observation I'd, I'd make on uh, on continuity of care. Um, the second the second one um, might be around the sort of continuity between um, when you have a flare up and um, when you're in remission. So, uh, not surprisingly, the resources are very fo- healthcare resources are very focused on um, those in most urgent need in the acute phase, um, delivering wonderful treatment. But it can feel like when you're then in remission that you're sort of on your own, 
Um, so it, it feels like the sort of the system is a bit skewed towards the acute rather than rather than remission. Um, from my observation, the uh, the quality of treatments and diagnosis when you're having a uh, a flare has improved beyond all recognition. I mean, there have been quantum leaps in uh, in in treatment, particularly with biologics these days, and the, and the testing as well. Whereas the advice um, on surviving remission hasn't doesn't seem to have changed for a very long time. And sort of avoid fatty and fibrous foods. Don't smoke and don't get stressed. Pretty pretty much it um, for the last thirty years for me. So I do I do I do wonder if if we had a if we turn the dial a fraction more towards remission, would we um, would we man, would we reduce the number of uh, the number of flare ups? And I've got a, I'd have I'd make a final observation on um, or I'd throw a final thing on the table around continuity of care, and then that's very locally within clinic. Um, and it's particularly relevant to the last year or two with the well-publicised sort of issues um, in the NHS. It's uh, continuity of care within a clinic, so seeing a different clinician each time. Um, I'm not completely certain even who my consultant is uh, the, these days. Um, so each time you see a consultant or speak to a consultant, you have to start from, uh, start, start from a blank sheet of paper, which with 47 years' worth of history... Isn't isn't always a great place to start? Absolutely. I mean, I, you have uh, really uh, touched on some major topics, uh, um, uh, Neil, which uh, I think Karen and I and and yourself need to talk through. But uh, just so that the listeners know that we're we're basing some of the discussion, some evidence base, just a bit of number crunching. I did a um, a, a quick literature search of. Um, continuity of care and um, two quite recent papers came up one in frontline gastroenterology which was published in January 2020 which did look at the quality um, of care in adults and IBD patients transferring between healthcare providers in London and although the authors didn't show a direct link with poor poorer outcomes as a result of that um, that transfer of care there was a clear potential for this and I think I think really it the take-home message for me is that IBDologists, nurses, healthcare professionals need to take more responsibility for transfers to ensure that continuity care. Do you have a brief paper I just wanted to very briefly touch on, uh, just for the listeners, and some of you that are on the Twitter sphere may have seen this already, is a recent paper in the Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics by Barney Hawthorne et al., uh, which was published literally in June 2022, which looked at 130-odd UK IBD services and looked at the response of around 10,000 patients with IBD and feedback on those centres. And it showed that uh, the feedback of quality of care was lowest in younger adults. So those that have come from, you know, potentially from paediatric care to adult care that have undergone um, transition where they possibly had a lack of continuity of care. And it also showed that patient reported higher quality of care if the patient information uh, and that continuity was relative, uh, readily available. There was a rapid response for advice through continuity. There was a rapid access to urgent care, again, through continuity, with high numbers of IBD nurses, Karen, which I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear, being strongly associated with uh, patients reporting that they've got a higher quality of care. It, it does resonate with me, and it, it, it still makes me really sad that today patients have to go through all this in terms of transferring from one hospital to another 
Um, I was interested, Neil, when you said about the the, the lack of continuity in clinics. We are geared to more pooled care, and that's purely because of, of resources and capacity. Have you had continuity of care provided by the IBD nurse? To be fair, yes, I have, actually. Um, I've got very good relationships with the... Uh, there are actually three IBD nurses um, in, my, in my clinic, um, all of whom are very capable, uh, very caring people, um, and I do get a very quick response um, when I need to re- when I need to reach out, um, so I'm, it's it's more on the um, on the on the sort of the, the clinician side, I think, but the yeah, the lack of continuity. Because it, it it does seem it does seem that the um, and I, I think I can speak as a as a consultant and uh, in these clinics that the IBD nurse role is absolutely vital, crucial, in fact, in the the whole. Joining together a patient's care, and I think without that, um, you know, patients really, really, really suffer. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you absolutely agree with that, Karen. Yeah, completely. Um, if I look at my role and my team, I can't understand how a hospital can function with an IBD nurse with an IBD service without an IBD nurse. We really do join all the dots. We bridge all of the care, uh, coordinate all of the care. Um, so yeah, com- completely agree and agree with the, the paper from Barney. I'm interested, Karen, what you thought um, of Neil when he was saying about the, the difference in, in care um, and long-term care between being when he was in it, he's in a flare as opposed to when he's in remission. And, I mean, particularly given the, the state of the NHS as we know it at the moment, um, uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, th- I think IBD care is predominantly driven by um, helping patients who are in a flare. Uh, and I think quite often we forget that when patients are in re- remission, I think the term you use, Neil, was um, you're on your own. Um, and we need to readdress the balance between managing patients in a flare and supporting patients who are in remission. Um, with capacity issues, it's it is an ongoing problem. Where I work at the moment, we have just started patient-initiated follow-up and home care protected, and with we have an app which we're using as well. So patients who are in remission still have contact with us. There is still a conduit to speak to us, to send home care protecting results, to send in your patient reported outcome measures and disease scores. Yeah, I mean, these are all uh, quite quite new-ish things. Uh, certainly in the, the, the pandemic has, uh, has launched these to, to the very forefront uh, a lot quicker than I suspect if, uh, if the pandemic hadn't happened. Uh, Neil, comments, what your thoughts on that? 
I mean, that sounds that sounds like a real benchmark, a real gold standard uh, service that uh, that you're providing there. I would I would say as well that I mean the I see the IBD nurses as being the absolute key to that continuity between flare up and remission, um, w- without question. And certainly in my experience, they are always at the end of a phone if there is a if there is a crisis. Um, where m- my perspective is avoiding that crisis in the first place. Um, and I also understand how complex it is because there are so many variables out there when you're out in the in the in, in the world, and it can be very very hard to pin down. I mean, I'm still I'm age fifty two, and I'm I'm still not completely sure I've figured out exactly what uh, what causes flare ups, and I'm still learning how to manage it. Um, so I think there is perhaps an onus on the patient as well there. So I, I wanted to just um, whilst we were talking around, um, you know, continuity of long-term care, just really uh, address something that we've not really touched upon very much is that I, I guess, as you know, a patient like yourself will have received lots of different advice over a long period of time. And how have you navigated that and got, got around that? And how do we improve that so there isn't this inconsistency um, between patients and, you know, between consultations even? So my feeling there is actually that the advice I've received over the years from the care teams has actually been very consistent, um, which which is which is quite positive. Um, where I think the um, the real trap is is out in the wider world in in the the availability of information, particularly online, um, particularly around managing remission and managing flares. Um, there's an awful lot on social media. Uh, that needs to be treated with great caution. Um, for example, you might have somebody saying that you know they they developed Crohn's disease after eating a fillet steak, therefore fillet steak causes Crohn's disease. Um, or you see regular posts about miracle cures, um, or all you need is this type of diet and your Crohn's is cured. So you do need a great deal of caution, and you need you need um, when looking online. Where do you go, Neil, for advice? Where is your go-to place to get advice? Because I think we all agree and know social media, the internet can be a a minefield, really, of information and trying to decipher what's good information, what's incorrect information can be quite difficult, can't it? I would always go straight to the, uh, the main charity websites. So I would always look at CC UK, Crohn's and Colitis UK, uh, for childhood Crohn's disease, I would recommend KICRA, Crohn's in Childhood Research Association, and uh, Guts Charity also has some very useful information. And those, the three of them, are all very, very credible sources, uh, well researched, uh, and uh, and good quality. No, I absolutely agree, and uh, I assume Karen, uh, you utilise their 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 work and uh, their information quite heavily um, in your practice. Yes, absolutely, Phil. We guide our patients to those uh, websites which Neil has mentioned and we really stress to patients to stay away from all of the others. As you say, I got IBD after a fillet steak and then patients say, I've read something that aloe vera will cure. So we really do keep patients away from those things. And in terms of um, conflicting advice, I think that's really where we come in as a nurse. 
that we can help clarify the advice that a patient may have been given from one healthcare professional to another. Um, and I think that's where we come in about negotiation between the healthcare professionals. So I would advise any patient who has received conflicting advice to speak to their IBD nurse. And yes, stay on Crohn's colitis, Kikra and Guts UK. You know, it's important to stick with, um, you know, good data, uh, good information sources and the, the charities that we particularly mentioned are the ones to go to for sure. Karen, uh, you've 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 already kind of given us some insights. I wonder whether you could give some further insights into your experience of long-term care of patients and the the importance of continuity, uh, just for just for our listeners to 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 glean your experience or what you think we should do really well. Um, I think, as I said before, we do need to readdress the balance between patients who are in a flare and patients who are in remission. Um, In terms of supporting patients in long-term care, we need to be asking patients appropriate questions. So we need to be asking patients if we've met their needs. If we've met their needs at that time point, if we've met their needs in the future, where they want to be in in five years' time. In terms of continuity, we are the backbone of continuity. And if I have a patient who wants to see a consultant, then I see that's my role to ensure that patient sees that consultant, that I negotiate through the system to get the right person for that patient at the right time yeah so so uh, um you almost uh and you'll have to pardon the exact um um metaphor you you grease the wheels really you you make it easier for the for the patient to get through the system yes definitely (laughs) (laughs) it's a phrase that we use up north well i i I, (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Neil, I would add to that as well. I think it helps the patients to learn the system too. I mean, it's brilliant to have the IBD nurses that can absolutely help you escalate when there's an issue and provide advice. But um, one thing I have learned over the years as well is that patient being proactive is absolutely vital. Um, and an example of that might be when I moved from the southeast up to the northwest of England, um, rather than just let the process work, um, I. I, I made it my business to sort of fig, research the various um, institutes and identify who seemed to be the um, the leading sort of figure in my part in my future part of the world, and then I reached out and made contact with that with that clinic, um, and then the and then the paperwork sort of in fact the paperwork didn't follow. I think my my records all my records were lost up to that point. So that's twenty two years of history, um, <laughs> pr- probably still sat on a shelf somewhere. Gosh, well, I, I mean, I, I think uh, Karen's probably uh, thinking, uh, I wish we all had patients that could uh, keep uh, uh, such contemptuous uh, and detailed uh, notes, really, uh, Neil. Uh, Karen? I think, Neil, you've, you've raised a really important point there. Um, and it's, it's about 
the patients knowing the system <clears throat> and I think that's what our role is is to educate and support a patient through the system not just in terms of, of self-management but so that you know when to access access our services and how to access the services yeah no i i mean uh, i i'm hearing that loud and clear from from what neil said now can i ask both of you in turn i'm going to start with um you karen actually um and ask two questions do we really know what good looks like and the second question is do we really address the long-term needs of patients and you could probably guess by uh, the way I phrase those questions to you, uh, what, what my personal slant or bias may already be. Uh, do we know what good looks like? I think good is defined by the patient. Um, we have the standards. We have um, the evidence from ECHO about what we should be doing. Uh, what is gold standard? But I think it's an individual thing and good is defined by that individual patient that we have met that patient's needs. Yep. So, uh, so, so that's my diplomatic response. Okay, and do we address the long-term needs of patients? In all honesty, I don't think we do. I think we are very much um, a reactive service. And as I said, we should be readdressing that balance and asking the patients what their long-term needs are and building that into all of our treatment plans. Okay, hearing that loud and clear now, Neil, I want your your gut response to to what Karen uh, has has said there on those two specific points. Um, do we know what good looks like, and do we address the long term needs of patients? Well, I think there are plenty of examples of what good does does look like, and I think Karen's articulated uh, ones earlier on in the. Um in this um, in this conversation. Um, so I do think there are benchmarks out there. Um, and as I said at the very beginning, I've experienced absolutely outstanding um, sort of treatment and care um, myself. I think I'd add also that um, one of the single biggest factors that's improved my long care has been the introduction of biologic treatments. I'd love to see, in terms of what good looks like, um, just in increased monitoring of, and manage and proactive management of, of that remission phase um, a, a, as well. So, for example, I mean, I, I wear a fitness tracker. I get wonderful daily data all about the heart rate and the fitness level and all the other all, all, all the other good stuff. If that kind of technology could be applied to, to tracking and managing IBD, then the insights potentially could be quite profound. Um, so that's in terms of what good looks like. Um, do we address the long-term needs of patients? Do we address your long-term needs, Neil? Uh, given my condition as it manifests to me reasonably well, yes. 
partly through partly through biologics, um, partly through I, I have recently had a, a very constructive discussion with um, with a, a professor at my clinic about sort of long term plan around surgery and so forth. Um, so I would say that that is uh, po- it is positive. I'd make another observation though that I think given the immediate pressures on the NHS, it feels a bit like the direction of travel generally is backwards. Um, in terms of the, um, the, the 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 lack of capacity to deal with what I know is very increasing demand. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, it's, it's it's very inspiring actually. Um, listening to you uh, talk, Neil, about uh, you've had a condition for such a long time, and you talk about new advances. You mentioned biologics, of course. There's lots of different other. Um, neurotherapies that are coming out all of the time as well and um, you know the fact that we've even now got you know such comprehensive standards which have uh, and guidelines which have involved up to 10,000 patients is is progress in its own right so I think there is a lot to be uh, positive about for uh, for patients clinicians healthcare providers in, in the in the future but I think there are some real lessons to be learned still I think um, I like um the idea of this really proactive monitoring of remission so that almost you put out any developing fires, if we use a metaphor again, before it starts again, so nip, nip things in the bud. So, uh, I mean, that that's what I gathered from what you were, you were saying, at least, uh, Neil. No, absolutely, and I, I would add to that as well. It's not just around nipping things in the bud, it's around helping that sort of learning process of learning how to manage it, learning the sort of triggers um, which we kind of, we would do, I think, sort of anecdotally, qualitatively, but it's just great to have some hard information in front of you. Yeah, no, no, I'm hearing that, um, hearing that loud and clear. Um, so one really uh, important area that we've we've touched on uh, a little bit, but not a huge amount yet, is is really the importance of communication and trying to, I guess, optimise um, uh, management through better communication, how we could potentially better coordinate um, multidisciplinary team discussions. Um, Karen, I'm sure like me, you've sat through many MD- MDTs. Um, how, how, how can we do this better? Um, MDTs in terms of uh, long-term care. Our MDT tends to be a more an acute situation. So we discuss patients who have got an immediate concern or, or complex issue as opposed to the long-term care of them. I, th- I think that what we discuss within the MDT does impact a patient's long-term care. And I think in terms of of communication, we do tell a patient that we are going to present them to the MDT. We explain who will be present at the MDT. And then we, as a nurse, we always phone the patients back on the day of the MDTT to explain the outcome of it. What we don't ask at the end of the MDT is have we met that patient's long-term goals? 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I uh, that that does resonate. Um, just from many uh, MDTs, uh, we we sometimes dub it, or, or I've dubbed it, uh, I should say, as MDT medicine, where people are almost discussed as hospital numbers, as opposed to this is Neil. Neil is this age and has got three kids. Um, uh, wants to do this in the future. He's about to get married in several weeks' time. So he's, I know from speaking in clinic, he'll accept this treatment but won't accept that treatment. It, it's, something gets lost in the MDT, um, you know, about their their long, longer-term aspirations. Um, and I, I wondered, because, Neil, you'll have been discussing so many different MDTs over the year, and you'll, you you know that, right? Of course. Um what what's your your thoughts on this as a, a patient? I mean, should you be involved in these uh, MDT meetings? That's a provocative question for you. Well, first first of all, from the outside looking in, I can clearly see the value of a multidisciplinary team getting all the experts around the table to discuss my test results and, and condition, um, particularly when I'm unwell. I can see that as being um, enormously uh, important. But I'd I'd make two observations the first is don't forget there's a patient at the end of it don't forget there's a person um, at the end of, at the end of it I mean in terms of a patient's input to the MDT if you're acutely unwell at that point in my case that's probably normally quite straightforward in which fight, fight, we need need a fix um, don't forget the communications after the meeting as as well uh, phone call on the day as Karen suggested would be would be absolutely ideal um, a, a sort of a letter of referral to, sur to surgery a week afterwards, uh, less ideal. The, um, while the MDTs today are set up for managing acutely unwell patients, what about a different sort of MDT to help manage patients through remission? So what about instead of the radiographers and the surgeons and the, and the clinicians, what, what about um, the psychologists, IBD nurses, nutritionists um, to help steer the remission process? No, I mean, it's a, it, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, uh, thought. Um, I, I am actually aware because I've been involved in them. Um, there are psychosocial MDTs that occur particularly in the context of intestinal failure or re, uh, intestinal rehabilitation. Um, so these things do exist, but I think um, and many listeners uh, will be aware of this. There is, a, I think, a real push, and part of this has come from the charities like Crohn's and Colitis UK, Kikri, the Children's Charity, Guts UK, and so on. Um, there's been a big push to try and involve uh, psychologists in as part of IBT teams and so I know in Liverpool, for example, we we got funding for a, a psychologist to, to support these longer term outcomes and aims and psychological health, and which often get overlooked. So I think um, I think it is being recognised as being more and more important. But I think there's a uh, certainly a way a way to go where it's come from. That's a nice thing to have. To that's an essential thing to have. And I think some of the IBD standards. Um, uh, support um, business cases behind that. I agree, I agree, Phil. I think it, it has gone thing from a nice thing to have to an essential thing to have. Um, and again, it's all to do with cost and the cost of bringing in a psychologist into an IBD team. 
and unfortunately <clears throat> we know from the IBD standards that there is a large percentages of IBD services who don't have a psychologist. Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, it is the, the, the big stumbling block in a lot of cases. It's, it's not a, uh, I think teams don't recognize this as being so important. It's, it's really the funding and mechanisms behind it. But, uh, I think, I think, there is momentum now behind um, trying to involve different uh, specialists in MDT for, to answer some of the things that, uh, and suggestions that you've made already, Neil. So I think there is hope uh, that we can um, better coordinate MDT discussions and optimise management through com better communication into the future through these different mechanisms and, and, and ways of working and the people that will be involved. So there is hope. That's great to hear. Right, this next bit is tough because I'm going to ask you uh, potentially um, if you there's one thing that you could change in your power to change, uh, what would it be um, uh, really relating to what's we've been covered today? I, I'm not I'm not sure who to start with here. I might put Karen under pressure first uh, and then see, see what Neil's response to that, whether it's a warm or... A lukewarm response to that. <laughs> so, so Karen, there's one thing that you could change. One thing, um, going back to something that that Neil said about transferring from one hospital to another. Um, I know that there are a number of issues with transferring patients, and where a patient then has to register with a GP to then register with a gastroenterologist. All of this takes so much time. And then the patient then goes a, a waiting list to, to be seen by the, gastroenterolo the gastroenterologist. And surely we can do something better, more seamless, more rapid, that we don't have to do that. Surely we can circumvent all of this. That we should have, we should be able to have a patient in in my clinic that I can transfer to you, Phil, directly to provide ongoing continued continuative care instead of patients getting lost in this transfer problem. I, I absolutely say here, here, Karen, because I completely agree. The merry-go-round of going from uh, uh, the, the hospital to the GP, the GP may not know the patient very well, then onto the hospital, onto a waiting list, get seen in a clinic. It might not be uh, uh, the consultant, it might be a registrar, it might be anybody is is quite unsatisfactory and then the weights and you don't know who's uh really needs to be seen etc is uh it seems to be a no-brainer to uh to, to stop straight away but neil um uh, response to that and then one thing that you could change if it's different of course I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. I think in the current day and age, it is completely normal for people to relocate and travel around the country, maybe unlike it was uh, some decades ago. So therefore, it should be a completely normal day-to-day -day healthcare process to be able to transfer people to accommodate that. Yeah, agree, Neil. Particularly with 
the students uh, that transition to us that then go on to university in a different area of the UK, uh, it becomes particularly problematic. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's it's uh, such a um, common scenario, really, that there should be a better way of doing that. Um, Neil, any uh, anything else that you would change uh, if there were, or is that the one thing you would change or have you you thought of something else I'll put something else on the table as well much as I agree with uh, with that last point and that's just uh, always really get to know the patient um, so many um, so many clinician appointments uh, follow the standard format of um, how, how are you feeling what are the symptoms here are the test results there's a treatment thanks for coming um, rather than looking at long-term needs and uh, the, the sort of the the, the the bigger picture, because in my experience, there's always something else going on in life um, that um, if the patient doesn't necessarily offer or bring to the uh, bring to the clinic, might might be missed. Now, I I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm seeing the person behind the disease seems such an obvious thing, but uh, I hear that loud and clear um, very often. Um, Karen, I, I, I can see that you're wanting to come in there. Um, I'm sure you've you've seen this a lot yourself. Yeah, com- completely agree, Neil. That it it should be part of the 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 consultation that you are asked about how you are, how is your f- fatigue how your energy levels how is work how is your family Um, and all of these these things do develop that relationship but actually I get a lot of knowledge from asking you those questions as well so completely agree Neil no completely agree Neil yes a final word from you so I, I found that that used to work really well when I, when I, when I moved up to my current clinic. Um, I was seen by the prof, had a great relationship with the prof. When he, whenever he wasn't able to see me, um, a deputy saw me. Eventually the prof retired, his deputy became the main man. Brilliant relationship. Um, and then over, over the years, it's become more of a sort of a pool system. And certainly very recently, um, I think we're a, long, we're a long way off where we need to be, be with that. Lovely. Well. Um... Lots of really interesting things uh, covered there. Um, I think there's uh, lots of things um, still to be done potentially in the in the future. But I think the the outlook isn't all uh, gloom and doom. I think there's lots of positive things um, that can be done. Um, Karen, thank you very much for joining today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. It's been excellent having you join and your brilliant insights. And Neil, a huge uh, thanks. I, I can, I'm sure I can also say from Karen as well for joining us as our, as our expert patient uh, input. Um, thank you so much. And uh, of course, uh, thank you very much to our listeners. Um, I, I'm Dr. Philip Smith. Uh, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Thank you for listening. Other podcasts are also available in the series More Than Guts, which are organised and funded by Bristol Myers Squibb.